Well, good morning. It has already been observed, a beautiful Sunday morning in July, and it's good to see your faces this morning. I know we have a number of people out traveling. It's uh, summer plans. I was commenting to someone this morning. It's supposed to be easier during the summer to get together, and it somehow seems harder as uh, busy schedules take over. You know, some persons are wired to see things black and white. It's either right or it's wrong. I probably fall more into this category. In fact, it's something I have been working on for a long time and have a lot more work to do to, to soften that tendency, that propensity. Things are just too easily black or white, fair or unfair, just or unjust. And I want it to fit neatly into one of those two categories. Even though some may be more predisposed to this, I think we all struggle to some extent to see or evaluate things from any other perspective than our own. Again, some more than others. But we're born that way. We're born that way because of our sin. Just ask any child who has ever said, that's not fair. What are they saying? They're saying that they are more deserving that their circumstances or their perspective of those circumstances mean that they are owed something or they deserve something, or that someone else deserves something less. Sometimes it can have no effect on them whatsoever. They just do not want someone else to have something. It's a good thing we grow out of that entirely, isn't it? And while we may grow out of our cries of that's not fair, we never fully escape this temptation to act as judge and jury, acting as if we have perfect knowledge and should be the determiners of who gets what in this life, even when it doesn't directly affect us. We still sit there and pass judgment on others who their life and what may come into their life has little to no effect on us directly. This morning we're going to address this sinful attitude. We're going to see it displayed really in an absurd and exaggerated way, but all along we need to be asking, in what way is this me? If you haven't already turned there, you can open your Bibles to the book of Jonah as we continue our study through the book of Jonah to Jonah, the end of chapter 3, as we move from chapter 3 into chapter 4 this morning. There at the very end we read in verse 10, When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Let's pray. Father, as we look at this text this morning and really look at 
a reaction to your mercy and your grace. I pray that you would not have us be passive participants, but active participants in the reading and the study of your word this morning to actively be asking, in what ways am I like Jonah? In what ways does my life need to change? Does my perspective need to change? Father, help us as we look at this story to understand it, to understand the significance, to understand what it means to respond when your word is delivered, to respond to your word, with the weightiness, the significance, the importance of your word be made clear this morning, and would it impact all of us as we study this together. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, the curtain closed last week on Act 3 of this story with a suspense hanging in the air concerning the fate of Nineveh. And assuming none of you had read ahead, you were sitting on the edge of your seats a moment ago. As the curtain rises on the first scene of this fourth and final act of Jonah, we find ourselves standing in the city of Nineveh alongside Jonah. The word of God arrived in Nineveh through the most unlikely of sources, this rebellious and reluctant prophet who made a lackluster effort in proclaiming the message. Still, despite his best efforts, the word of the Lord has supernaturally gone throughout the entire city, even reaching the ears of the king. And the response to the word of the Lord by these Ninevites is nothing short of remarkable. Never before, as we looked at last week, never before in history has such a thing taken place. The greatest revival that has ever taken place in the history of this world. From the greatest to the least of them, they turned from evil, proclaimed a fast, even made their animals participate in the fast. Now, you, like the king of Nineveh, are left wondering what will happen to this great city. As you consider this multitude, this city which was bustling with activity and noise and commerce when you first arrived has all but ceased as the people collectively devote themselves to repentance, prayer, and fasting. It would be an eerie scene. Now the question hangs in the air. Will God relent? Or will the judgment of God still come upon them at the end of 40 days as a consequence of their great wickedness? Well, as we've already read, we don't have to wait long to find out, do we? Verse 10 of chapter 3 says, When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. Nineveh is spared. This great city, this great and wicked city, wickedness that surpasses even some of the most unimaginable atrocities you can think of, barbaric atrocities, has repented and is spared. God has turned from his wrath toward this great city because the people have repented and turned from their sin. This is a day for rejoicing. But perhaps there's a nagging question in your mind. I mean, it certainly looks here like God changed his mind. In fact, this is the precise point which troubles many people with the book of Jonah. Once they get past 
the part of the big fish swallowing and regurgitating Jonah. The next difficulty they have is that God apparently changes his mind. This doesn't sound very godlike at all. God is supposed to be constant. He's supposed to be unchanging. Didn't he say and proclaim in 40 days Nineveh would be destroyed? So is God inconsistent? Or worse, a liar? Or is he just fickle, capricious, and emotionally unstable like all the other gods of the ancient Near East? Well, to answer this question and silence the skeptics, we need to look at another Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 18. Don't lose your spot in Jonah. It's hard enough to find as it is. But while holding it there, turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. As you turn to Jeremiah 18, you're dropped into a scene where God sends Jeremiah on a field trip to the potter's house. Verse 1 begins, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Now the purpose of this field trip is not to learn pottery techniques. The lesson God has for Jeremiah, which was to, in turn to be taught to all of Israel and be preserved in his word for all subsequent believers in God, is found in these next verses, verses 5 through 10, where the word of the Lord comes yet again to Jeremiah. Verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull it down, or destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. What follows after that is a sad indictment against the nation of Israel and Judah, which failed to repent the word of God. But what we learn in these verses, really what we are reminded of, because this is nothing new, is that when it comes to God's pronouncements of judgment and blessing through the prophets, that God uses these pronouncements to draw persons, to draw nations into relationship with Him. He uses these pronouncements of judgment and blessing as motivation and reminders to turn to Him, to either avoid or to flee evil. And the consistently gracious and merciful nature of God is this to preserve people who respond in repentance. This is, in fact, the message of salvation. This is the message of the gospel of the New Testament. 
In both Romans and in Acts, we are reminded that all who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The wrath of God is coming upon this world. The kingdom of God is at hand as we've been studying in our study through the Gospel of Matthew. But while the message is still being proclaimed, prior to the kingdom coming, there is still time. How much time? We don't know. It may be years. It may be months, it may be weeks, it may be days, it may be minutes. We do not know. But while we do have time, while the message is still being proclaimed, there is time to repent. But this lack of knowing means don't delay, repent now. Turn from your sin, turn from your wicked way. And as we're reminded of, there is no one who God will turn away who repents and turns from their sin. Interestingly, at the beginning of the book of Jonah, it was the deeds of Nineveh and their wickedness that had risen before Yahweh. Now, it is their deeds that rise before Him, and now their deeds please Him as He looks upon them. Their repentance, their prayers, and their actions of obedience demonstrate the change of heart which results then in the mercy and the relenting of God's wrath and judgment just as God had reiterated in Jeremiah toward any people or nation who would turn from their sin. What a remarkable reminder of the salvation of God. The salvation that Jonah himself proclaimed from the belly of the fish. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, if you thought this series of events would delight Jonah as he watched the people of Nineveh respond in repentance to the word of the Lord which he delivered, you're in for a shocking surprise. And yet another outrageous turn of events in this short little book, we've had so many of these already, this prophet of God is furious that the recipients of the message have responded to God. They've responded to the message he delivered. Despite his best efforts to the contrary. They've responded to the word of the Lord. He tried fleeing to Tarshish. He had offered a rather abbreviated message, likely void of any real enthusiasm when he eventually did show up in Nineveh. He had only gone partway through the city. Yet despite all of this, the people have heard and responded. What an absurd situation this is. Has there ever been a prophet of God upset, angry, furious when, God's, when people respond to God's message? When they repent at His message? There has never been a prophet like this. This is ridiculous. He's guilty of malpractice is what it is. The first three cha- verses of chapter 4 moves the attention from Nineveh squarely back to Jonah. Jonah, who had dropped out of view in chapter 3, suddenly reappears in the most absurd way possible. In many of your translations, it reads something along the lines of this in verse 1, it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. But this translation really whitewashes the sentiment. A better rendering would be, it was evil to Jonah. What God had done was evil to Jonah. A great evil, and it caused him to burn. 
He perceived it as evil, and so it became evil to Jonah, and he burned with anger. Notice what has happened here. The wickedness, the evil that the book opened up with in Nineveh is now no longer found in Nineveh. Now the evil is found in Jonah. The irony is thick here. The end of Yahweh's anger toward Nineveh has now become the start of Jonah's anger. And the end of Nineveh's wickedness has now become great wickedness in Jonah. That great city was evil. Now Jonah is greatly evil. What is going on here? For the second time in this short book, we find Jonah praying. Apparently he sat in silence while the people repented, just as he sat in silence while the sailors cried for help. But now he finds his voice. Yet when he speaks, his words mirror those of unbelieving and grumbling Israel after they were delivered from Egypt, whom upon seeing the Egyptian charioteers cried out in Exodus 14:12, saying, Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? This same heart of contempt, grumbling, distrust in God, complaining is found within Jonah. That phrase, what I said, is quite literally my word, and that's important. Jonah says, was this not my word? Now, why is that language so significant? You already know the answer to that. Because the significance, the story of the prophets... The whole point of the story of Jonah is what happens when the word of the Lord comes into this world. What happens when the word of God comes into history. Jonah's word doesn't matter. Yet here we find Jonah engaged in an effort to exchange God's word for his own word. What opened with the word of the Lord is now Jonah declaring my word. Jonah is more interested in his word than the word of of God which has come into history. Jonah is convinced that he knows better than God. He wants to set aside what God has said and wants to focus on what he has said. He's claiming authority over God. He's in effect declaring, God, you done messed up. Did I not tell you this would happen? That they might repent? Now look at the mess you've caused. Now you have a bunch of repentant Assyrian Ninevites. What a mess. Things were a lot cleaner and simpler when they were just the wicked enemy. When they stood under your judgment, when I could hate them and you would destroy them. As bad as this is, and it's bad, it gets worse. Because not only does Jonah try to chastise God for not listening to him, and try substituting his word for God's word. He's not content. He now wants to rebuke God for his very nature. For acting like God. He rebukes God for being gracious. For being compassionate. For being slow to anger. For being abundant in loving kindness. Jonah tries to portray God's grace, his mercy, and his loving kindness as a bad thing. He completely misses 
or forgets or perhaps just ignores that he himself is a recipient of this same grace, this same mercy, this same loving kindness. In fact, it was demonstrated to him in an incredible way just a couple of months earlier in the belly of a fish. Now, there's a lot we can fault Jonah with. But there's one thing you can't fault here in this statement, and that is the theology Jonah expresses. The theology he expressed was consistent with what God himself has said about himself. Jonah just tries to make it negative somehow. For instance, we read in Exodus 34, verse 6, God's own words about himself as he put Moses into that cleft of the rock. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Or Psalm. Psalm 145, verses 8 through 9, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. Those are two out of dozens of passages that reiterate the theological truth and profundity of this statement, this theologically accurate statement that Jonah has made. And notice that up until this point, the narrator has withheld why Jonah fled back in chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. We might have surmised, we might have guessed any number of reasons, but ultimately we did not know. The narrator has been keeping us in suspense the entire book in order to now begin to reveal it to us. But as this is revealed, there's a question that nags at me. It's a question I can't help but ask at this point. We, we saw, we understand that Jonah tried to forestall, tried to subvert God's mercy on Nineveh. But we also know that God's mercy on Nineveh would only come if they repented. So based on what we know of Nineveh, on what we know of their wickedness, their wholesale idolatry, Why did Jonah think, even for a moment, that Nineveh would respond in repentance and that God's mercy would be unleashed? What was it that even for a moment gave him pause to think that God's mercy would come on Nineveh, that they would, in fact, repent? There's nothing in the character of Nineveh that would suggest this. Absolutely nothing. Nothing in history. In fact, if anything, the closer you looked at Assyrians and the Ninevites, the more unlikely it would seem that they would repent. I believe there's at least two reasons that this is the case. First and foremost, Jonah understood the power of God's word. Jonah understood that when God's word enters human history, it will have an effect. 
And at the risk of drawing too close a comparison, is this really any different than the preaching of the gospel to any of us or anyone in this world? Is there anything in us before salvation? Is there anything in anyone before Christ that would give any indication that they would respond to the gospel? Is there any reason someone dead in their trespasses and sins would respond to the preaching of the Word of God in and of themselves? The answer is absolutely not. And yet what Jonah recognized, what we should recognize, is that there is power in the Word of God. Because when God's Word enters human history, lives are changed. It should give us confidence in the Word of God. It should give us excitement in preaching the Word of God, in sharing God's Word to the unbelieving, to a dark world, because there are none darker than the Ninevites. There are none darker than the Assyrians. And if God can save an entire people, an entire city that is that dark, that wicked, that antagonistic to any hope of the gospel, then surely he can save your neighbor. Surely he can save those in our capital. Surely he can save any of his creation. Secondly, if you remember from our first week, we looked at what little we know about Jonah. What little we know about Jonah is from 2 Kings 14, and there we were reminded that Jonah was a prophet of mercy. He had witnessed firsthand God's compassion on sinful Jeroboam and sinful Israel and understood that God's compassion is shown even to sinful persons. And so he likely understood that his commission meant mercy to Nineveh. And that was the last thing he wanted. So Jonah begins to throw a pity party that continues through the rest of chapter 4. But here in chapter 2, or verse 2, Chapter 4, Jonah's prayer portrays these orthodox characteristics of God as a divine weakness. Jonah, like so many others, has mistaken the patience and the mercy of God for weakness. And we do this today, do we not? When a person shows kindness, mercy, forbearance, it's easy to also address them as gullible, easily taken advantage of, weak. This is certainly how the world frequently views those characteristics. Too often the church is like the world. We want leaders who are strong, firm, decisive. While there's nothing inherently wrong with those characteristics when tempered, you'll notice that those characteristics are woefully lacking in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, self-control. None of those things are found in the list of qualities Paul or Peter provide when looking for spiritual leaders. And yet we gravitate toward these kind of leaders. There really should be a gut check to us. Why? Why do we gravitate towards that? Why do we want kings like the nations around us? To borrow an Old Testament image. Now, despite concerns raised about the mutability, or that is, the changing nature of God, which we've already addressed, what Jonah is really doing here 
and verse 2 is accusing God of acting consistently. He's accusing God of behaving in the most predictable way possible. Far from being changeable or affected by persons, Jonah is accusing God of being consistent and acting in a way that is perfectly consistent with who he is. And this upsets Jonah. Notwithstanding Jonah's attempt to chastise God for acting as God, as you've already noted, Jonah has one thing going for him in all this, and that is his orthodox theology. You can't fault his theological statements. His conclusions are a totally different matter, but his theological statements, they're sound. Chapter 1, the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Chapter 2, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now in chapter 3, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah's problem here is not bad theology. Jonah's problem is his sinful response to good theology, to what he knows to be true. As we noted a few weeks ago, right doctrine or right theology does not automatically, nor does it always lead to right behavior and right living. There are plenty of times where those with some of the best theology do the most damage and hurt people the most. It's a mistake to think all you have to do is teach someone correct theology and they'll turn into a perfect Christian. Right doctrine is certainly necessary, but without application and a demonstration of how to live it out, it is nothing more than a banging gong or a clanging cymbal. It is woefully inadequate to say right doctrine leads to right living. It's not a wrong statement, it is just woefully inadequate. As if it is automatic once we've taught someone right doctrine. And once we've taught them right doctrine, our job is done. What teacher is there who thinks all they've got to do is have students sit in math lectures all day and they'll become excellent mathematicians? Who thinks that by attending as many major league baseball games as possible, they'll become a professional baseball player? As much as I appreciate and advocate for biblical counseling, this is one of the great dangers in it. This is by no means saying don't practice biblical counseling. No, do it, but do it rightly. Because it's very tempting to think all I've got to do is show someone the truth of scriptures, give them a list of verses to memorize, scriptures to read, and my job is done. Just hand them a book. That'll fix it. No, that's the easy part. The hard part is what should follow. It's coming alongside. It's loving them. It's walking through life with them. It's encouraging them. It's demonstrating godliness and where necessary repentance in your own life. It's not just giving them right teaching. As we see with Jonah, right theology is not enough. It's necessary, but it's not enough. Well, Jonah's prayer takes a decidedly dark turn in verse 3 where Jonah declares he would rather die than live in a world with repentant Ninevites who have experienced the mercy of God. Over my dead body is Jonah's sentiment. So he asks God to let him die. Just put me out of my misery. And this is not the first time Jonah has sought death as a solution, is it? 
This was the attitude on the boat. Throw me into the sea, he said. He'd rather die than see Nineveh turn or pagan sailors saved. Just throw me into the sea. Now, rather than grant Jonah's petition for death, God responds to this prophet's absurd prayer with a question. Is it right for you to be angry? And that's where we'll stop this morning. How will Jonah respond to this question by God? Will we again see some semblance of humility like we saw in the belly of the fish? What does God desire to teach us through this prophet? How will things end for Jonah? How will things end for Nineveh? We have to come back next week for that. However, before we close our time together, I again think it's important we stop and consider a couple of issues raised in the story that we observed this morning. There's already been much to apply, but there's a couple of other issues that are worth time contemplating. You see, we've observed two responses to the repentance of the Ninevites. God's response was mercy, compassion, loving kindness. Jonah's response was bitterness, resentment, and anger. And I think it's right for us to ask, how do we respond when God acts in this world? It may not always be as obvious as the wholesale repentance of a nation, but God is always at work. Whether it be putting ungodly persons into positions of authority, Perhaps it's the loss of the job. Perhaps someone getting a promotion you thought you deserved. So many things. Perhaps it's a car accident. Any number of things. How do you respond? Do you respond in resentment when God works? Do you ask, why me? Do you claim that it's not fair? Do you question God's judgment? Jonah is presented here as an example of how not to respond when God speaks and God acts. Don't become embittered over God's mercy and grace towards others. Keep the long view. Remember that God is patiently calling sinners to himself. And to do that, he may act and work in some highly unique ways. Ways that to you seem unfair, unjust, not right. Don't become myopic or that is short-sighted and think it's all about you because it's not. Secondly, observe what actions it was that caught God's attention and invited His mercy, His grace, and His loving kindness. In verse 10 of chapter 3, it's not the fasting, it's not the sacrifices, it's not the morning. The actions that God sees and responds to is turning from wickedness. It doesn't mean those other things are wrong. But you see, it's easy to put on religious airs. It's easy to show up on Sunday and worship for a few hours. Anyone can fake religious sincerity for a few hours. Or in a few minutes of conversation. But to change your habits... To change your deeds, that's where real repentance is seen. This is where the real heart is revealed. 
how you are on Monday morning and throughout the week, how you speak and act toward your coworkers, your spouse, your children, your friends, and others. God says through Hosea the prophet in Hosea 6.6, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That word loyalty is actually that same word, loving kindness. I delight in loving kindness rather than sacrifice. I delight in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Show me that you love me by turning from your sin. Don't put on religious airs. Anybody can do that for a short period of time. Show me day in and day out that you are loyal, that you love me, says God. In the New Testament, we clearly see this expressed as faith without works is what? Dead. When you evaluate your repentance, when you look at your life, are you a religious sort of person on Sunday but someone different throughout the week? What would your spouse say? What would your family or friends say? Instruction for us this morning is to be like the repentant Ninevites. Something you probably never expected to hear me say, be like the Ninevites. But be like these repentant Ninevites whose deeds were clearly evident. They drew the attention of God and drew His mercy, His grace, and His loving kindness. Lastly, at least for this morning, observe and ask, how do you respond to God's Word? The Ninevites barely knew of God. But you see, they took His Word very seriously. With the utmost seriousness. They altered their whole lives around it. Immediately. How do you respond? How much of your life are you willing to orient around God's Word? How much of it are you holding back or wanting to keep for how you want to orient it? How you want to control it? What you want to do with it? How do you respond when God's Word comes into your life? When you read your Bible? When you hear it proclaimed? When you hear it in conversation? Jonah ran away and then got angry. The Ninevites repented. When confronted with God's Word, when it convicts, when it calls for change, do you respond like Jonah? Running away from conviction? Getting angry? Now, we run away in all sorts of ways. You may say, no, of course I don't run away like Jonah. I'm not going to book fair on a ship to Tarshish or Timbuktu. But you see, we run away in all sorts of ways. We bury ourselves in television shows, sports, and other forms of entertainment. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we, the misery of this age can be seen in its desire for artificial stimulants. We lose ourselves in social media. We turn to the number of likes or comments we get for affirmation and self-worth. Or perhaps we're so used to hearing God's word that we become complacent and we do not take it seriously. Like the child who's learned to tune out their parent's voice. We've heard it so often that we don't stop and pay attention. Will you respond to God's word? Will you submit to it? Will you repent? Again, the Christian life is not a one-time repentance. There must certainly be a starting point. It has to begin. We talked about that transfer of your citizenship from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That begins with that first act of repentance. But it doesn't stop. 
the Christian life, the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ, is a repenting life. As we observed this morning, repentance is not merely intellectual assent. It's not just right theology. It's a change of behavior. It's turning from evil to serve God. Have you done that? Have you ever done that? If not, do it before it's too late. If you're a believer, are you continuing to do that? The Word of God was delivered to Nineveh. The Word of God has come to us. You hold it in your hands. How will you respond? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony we have in the book of Jonah. Thank you for the important but hard reminders we've seen this morning. Father, as countercultural or counterintuitive as it may seem, we thank you for the conviction you bring. We thank you for the painful exposing your word does of our sin. Now, Father, give us the strength by your spirit to do deeds that are pleasing in your sight. May our lives be a sweet and fragrant offering. May we, as Paul says in Romans 12, offer our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you as our reasonable act of worship. Father, help us to encourage one another to do this and so much more as we see the day approaching. In your name, amen.